Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What's up, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can help this show to grow while also getting access to our exclusive Pride content, which includes shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, Special Interviews, Lions of Liberty Roundtables, and much, much more. So check that out. Help us grow at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hello again, my friends in Liberty. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 71. Which, of course, means, as always, you can find the show notes for today's episode at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL71. At the top of the show, guys, I want to remind everyone that we are in the process. We're pretty much done with it now, but we are in the process of transferring our files and our podcasts and everything on over to uh, to Libsyn as our base podcast provider due to some uh, technical issues we had with our old host. So that's pretty much done. If you had any issues getting the podcast a couple weeks ago, I apologize for that, as do all of us here at Lions of Liberty. But we worked our uh, our asses off to get this thing fixed as quickly as possible and to assure it won't happen again. So if you did, in fact, miss any of the podcasts that we had done, uh, Mark had an interview with Anthony Samaroff of the Scottish Liberty podcast. That was a good one. As well as John uh, Odermatt on Felony Friday had Adam Kokeshian, who uh, most of you, if not all of you listening, are familiar with. Go back, make sure you download those, those episodes, give them a listen, because that is pure audible gold that you don't want to miss out on. Okay, so before we get into my podcast here, officially, I do want to thank all the people that came out to our Liberty Meetup group, of course, put together by the wonderful Pablo of Liberty on the Rocks, and uh, we've been calling them Liberty Behind the Lines. That was kind of the name of the first one that has stuck, but uh, the first one we did, of course, had me, Mark Claire had uh, Dave Smith and uh, Jason Stapleton, who, of course, you're familiar with, now lives in L.A. So we then did a second one this past weekend that had Scott Horton in town and uh, Michael Bolden, who didn't really take that much of a part in the podcast, but is going to be coming on some of our podcasts coming up in a fun fashion because uh, Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center is a pretty funny guy. (laughs) I'm looking forward to getting him on uh, uh, in in such capacity as you might be able to see. But uh, Scott Horton came in. We hosted an event there. Of course, you know Scott. Scott's a force of nature, so um, there's a lot of a lot of Scott talking, and uh, you know we try to chip in here and there. But thank you to everybody who came out for that event. I, of course, was coming off my second bachelor party, back to back weeks of bachelor parties uh, the night before, which I arrived home at about. Mm, I should say I'd say I arrived home at about three a.m. I think I got to sleep at about four a.m. And then I uh, woke up the next day and had to do this uh, this event. I didn't have to do it, of course. It was voluntary. I was forced into it. And I look forward to these events because they're a lot of fun. 
you know, we had a lot of people come out. They were great. We had some members of our pride come out. Uh, Adam and Joey came out. That was great. Talking to some other listeners like Matt. But uh, at the end of the night, you know, basically I've been there for three three hours at this point, uh, three plus hours drinking. I you know, still just feel like garbage from the night before. And I had people talk to me and ask me questions late in the day. And boy, oh boy, guys, I got to tell you, my brain, man, <laughs> my brain, it ain't, it ain't working so well after uh, after all these weeks of uh, excess. I'll put it that way to be kind. And I am still feeling the excess or the <laughs> the letdown from such excess today. So we'll see how long this episode goes and how intelligent I sound. Because God knows I did not sound too great at the end of that uh, that meetup group. Well, I was doing the podcast fine and I could hold it together okay. But phew, man, when your brain starts to melt, your brain starts to melt. So we'll see how many flubs I have in this episode that I refuse to edit around. All right. First things first. Let's talk about the Iran deal. That's what everybody's going to be talking about. Donald Trump has officially said he is going to pull out of the Iran deal that was put forth by Obama, of course, which the goal of which was to limit the Iranian capability to create nuclear armament. That's presuming they don't already have it. Whether or not you believe that uh, is up to you. We all know that they can at least create the materials that you would need to put together a bomb. I would presume that they have the technological uh, capability and knowledge to create such a bomb should they wish. I mean, after all, if North Korea can do it, taping together raccoons and plutonium, are we really to presume Iran can't after years? But this was put into play. A good trade-off removed a lot of sanctions from Iran. Of course, in my opinion, uh, which a lot of you, I'm sure, share, sanctions are simply acts of war on an economic front that affect the people rather than the people in charge. We've not seen any sort of regime change in Iran since they've been sanctioned. I uh, don't think we're going to see any sort of regime change by putting those sanctions back in place. And this is despite the fact that Trump, of course, ran on an anti-regime change platform. However, we have asshats like Rudy Giuliani, who is supposed to be Trump's lawyer, defending him in this Stormy Daniels lawsuit, which I could give two flying uh, shits about. But we've got Giuliani out here addressing the Iran Freedom Coalition, in New York City, stating on the record, now granted, this isn't from Trump's mouth, but he's stating on the record that Trump is committed to regime change in Iran. <laughs> as they say, uh, Donald Trump is as committed to regime change as we are addressing that audience. So not only are we seeing that Donald Trump is not pulling out of Syria, as was uh, predicted and planned, no, no, no. Instead, we're staying there. We're uh, we're bombing supposed chemical facilities. And now there's talk of possibly handing that off to a coalition led by the Saudis. Because, you know, you want the Saudis in there taking care of things, especially when you have a lot of human rights issues like you do in Syria already and, uh, and a possible power vacuum such as was created in Libya, wherein you could have a slave market put into place in, in 2018. Well, it's great to have the Saudis slipping in there in this mission to to quiet that country down because they've just been knocking it out of the ballpark with this whole Yemen issue with the, with the blockading of all, all sorts of, uh, of aid and humanitarian coalitions that might want to try to get in there. 
and causing widespread widespread deaths among people because of cholera and, and other issues of the digestive tract. So maybe, you know, there's babies diarying themselves to death. Well, let's get Saudi Arabia in there to help us, Syria, because, you know, we want to pull out of there. We'll just fly them in. We'll fly them in with our arms, and we'll help them bomb places, just like in Yemen. Great, great plan. All right. Getting back to Iran. This is going to be a ranty episode. Like I said, my brain is still mush. And uh, so it's going to be like, it's going to be like catching fireflies in the woods, guys. A little pretty image for you as we roll into summertime. <laughs> Just going to try to catch these fireflies, mash them together into coherent thoughts. So anyway, you've got this Iran situation now where Trump wants to pull out. And in the middle of pulling out of this Iran deal, which in my opinion, may not have been perfect, but at least it was something which was going to stabilize the relationship between the United States and Iran. It was going to assure that we're not going to war with Iran. It's the last thing we can need nor afford, although it's the first thing that all these neocon war hawks want, including John Bolton, including Mike Pompeo. First thing that these people want is to get us in a brand new war with all that money we're putting forth into the uh, into the military budget. But we're removing this deal, which was negotiated by Obama, just as North Korea is coming to the table for negotiations. And, you know, this this argument's been raised by some senators. I think Rand raised, I think Jeff Flake, flaky old Flake had raised this issue. But it does put an interesting taste in the mouth of anybody who might be thinking, well, I'm going to negotiate this disarmament or denuclearization, such as Kim Jong-un is doing right now, to look at America and say, well, look at this. They just made this deal, and now they're going to renege on it. Now, part of me wants to give Trump too much credit, I think, and say that he's only doing this in an effort to say, okay, we're going to pull this Iran deal back, and then I'm going to renegotiate it. I don't want to just take it off the table. I'm not going to do it just to uh, to crack down and put the sanctions in place, place to to ferment this possibility of war even further. But knowing how, well, knowing, guessing how Trump operates now, this could be another exercise in going to the absolute extreme by canceling this nuclear deal in order to get a better deal. And what they're saying is that Trump wanted a deal in which the restrictions on the Iranian nuclear program would not sunset. I.e., I think they were supposed to go until something like 2025 or 2028. And at that point, there would be a renegotiation. At that point, Iran could start to to continue their efforts in regards to nuclear capability on some level. So Trump said, well, no, it should never sunset. Now, <laughs> of course, if you're the, the Iranians, it's a ridiculous position. You're never, there's no deal in the world in the history of business nor government is there ever a deal in which you will say okay yeah from now until the end of time we agree we're never going to do this thing again May- well maybe maybe if you're uh the nazis or maybe if you're the germans you agree that you're never going to uh to go ahead and try to commit genocide against the jews again that's probably a good thing but in regards to military capability or development of technology, you're never going to say, okay, we're never going to ever try to do this again when it's something that we already have the knowledge, we have the capability. Why would you do that? Number one, you lose all your leverage moving forward. Let's say situations change. Let's say global politics change in the next 25 years, the next 10 years. Let's say that the United States continues to back Israel, that Israel takes over uh, certain jurisdictions and becomes even more powerful than it is. 
Iran and Israel are, of course, direct enemies. We know that Israel has a nuclear weapon. So why, if you were Iran, would you just de facto be like, never mind, we're never going to have nukes again. We, we officially concede this power, which is one of the things that could protect us from our, our enemy right across the way. It, it makes zero sense. But I'm hoping that, again, Trump's negotiating tactic seems to be to take the, the farthest possible position and then work his way back. And he's putting Bolton in there. He's putting Pompeo in there. These people that we know hate Iran. As much as you can hate Iran, they hate Iran. And he's canceling this deal. And I'm curious to see what happens now. And now these sanctions are going to roll into place. They're going to limit the military, or not the military. They're going to limit uh, the business associations, of course, that Iran can have. They're going to limit the amount of, of oil business they can do. They're going to try to cut off all of the financial uh, trade that's going on with European countries. And then, of course, the United States is threatening that they're going to sanction the European nations that continue to, to work with Iran, you know, fostering goodwill <laughs> all over the place. Fostering goodwill is what the United States does. So we'll just we'll just see what happens. I. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I, I'm hoping that Iran is a simply a tactic to get Iran back to the table. I don't necessarily support it. As you might be able to tell, uh, I think it brings us closer to potentially going to war with Iran, if you can't tell. But with Trump, you just never know. All of his rhetoric with North Korea uh, leading up with it was fire and fury. And yet here they are talking about denuclearization and the reunification of the country. So that's closer than it's ever been. I hope Giuliani's wrong when we're talking about regime change in Iran. It certainly seems like economic prosperity in that country, the chance for the people of Iran to experience the economic freedom of uh, capitalism, to spend their money and to maybe hate a little little bit uh, less the United States. That would be a good thing. Because a recent poll also came out that showed that people that are born within the Middle East, typically not everybody, of course, but a good number of people that are from the Middle East and the various countries that we have interfered in, which... I mean, more than on one hand now, right? Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Iran, Iraq. There to say Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, God, where else? Uh, Pakistan, Gaza Strip. You know, all these places that the United States is is, is active in, and and that's just that. And let's not even get into broader Africa either. Like, you know, Niger, uh, Somalia, where we're doing these. We have troops on the ground in these places. Let's just talk about the, the Middle East, but show that a lot of the people that are in the Middle East right now, young people consider the United States as the enemy. Just de facto coming to this world thinking that. And why wouldn't they, considering the actions that we've done, why wouldn't they, considering the bases, the drones, Obama bl- you know, dropping bombs on people's weddings, the Trump administration now, at least Obama, <laughs> not to defend the Obama administration dropping drone bombs on weddings and on birthday parties and murdering American citizens without any sort of habeas corpus. But the Trump administration doesn't even release the civilian, civilian death numbers from the drone bombings that are going on actively right now across the world. At least the Obama administration gave us that. That was the, that was the tip of the ashes on top of us. Well, here you go. Here's your pittance. You may now you may know how many people, innocent people, your tax dollars are paying for. Just straight to 
heaven or hell, I guess, depending on which uh, which way you look at it. Just, yeah, I, I just don't even know. Hope for the best. One of the good things I will say, segue into the next topic briefly, is that at least in regards to Syria, you know, I was talking about this this rumored coalition of uh, Saudi Arabia, and I can't remember who else, the other country that's supposed to be helping send troops over there, but at least it's on record now that the White Hats, the group that I personally believe has gassed their own people not once but twice and committed any number of other atrocities in the effort to get America and other nations to stay in Syria to fight on their behalf and essentially to fight for terrorists, <laughs> the same people that we were fighting against that uh, attacked us on 9-11 or the people who were supporting in Syria. Figure that one out. But the United States has officially stopped funding the White Hats. And this said, you know, the White Hats are funded through a, a pretty complex network of international organizations, but the United States basically supplied a lot of that funding that went on through to them. And it was all kind of hidden in a way in which it came from different uh, companies, one company of which the United States gave some $128 million to. And that company went by the name Chemonics, which is kind of funny considering the fact that we're talking about the White Hats who we believe gassed their own people in order to prevent this false flag attack, which <laughs> which are the much tomahawk, tomahawk missiles fired by Trump and continued American existence in Syria. Now, Chemonics has given $32 million officially to the White Hats, and that, in, that agency is a contracting organization that exists, according to their website, as a peaceful transition to a democratic and stable Syria. Well, that's, that's their goal. So their goal is a peaceful transition to a democratic and stable Syria. And it's part of the United States uh, Syria Regional Program. So the new report that just came out from CBS says that they have not funded the White Hats. That's been cut off. Now that I don't know exactly if that means it's from the contractor that's cut them off. But officially, the United States has said that they are suspending and reevaluating the way that they're spending that money in Syria. Of course, the biggest question is why are we spending any money in Syria right now? But I guess it's a good thing overall, empirically, if they are wondering if they should continue to fund an organization which has gassed its own people, again, in my opinion. And uh, and maybe they'll they'll decide to spend that money in a, a whole different way, like drone bombing the crap out of people. You know, I just don't think that they're going to give it up and keep it for the good of America. Although... Something I'm going to get into in just a few minutes is that uh, the United States has been posted its greatest budgetary month ever in the history of the world, taxation-wise. And Trump has ordered $15 billion to be trimmed from the books, which is a mighty drop in the bucket compared to the overall. I'll be back to talk about that in a moment. In the meantime, take a listen to this quick message, and we'll be right back. My name is Dale Kearns, and I'm running for United States Senate in Pennsylvania as a libertarian. I'm a concerned citizen who has had enough. I work as a project manager for an electrical contractor in southeastern Pennsylvania. There I manage large commercial and industrial projects. I'm a husband and a father of two energetic little girls. I'm running to advocate for a society where my girls have more liberty, not less. Will you support our campaign? 
Unlike my competitors, I'm not a career politician. I don't have millionaire and billionaire donors. I'm running for Senate in Pennsylvania because I want to take the message to Washington that we want government out of our lives. Will you let me be your voice? Let me be the voice that says we will not walk quietly down the road to serfdom. The voice that says we need free market solutions. The voice that says we need to end the failed war on drugs. The voice who will fight for the forgotten man, non-violent offenders wasting away in prison, and addicts who are afraid to speak up and seek the help they need. We are seeking members for our campaign team. I encourage you to apply. We need donations to help us spread the message of liberty across the state. We can go on hoping for liberty to happen, or we can fight together. I hope you choose the latter and join me today. Find out more at DaleKearns.com. Paid for by Dale Kearns for Office. All right, welcome back. Welcome back to Electric Liberty Land, episode 71. If you miss it at the top of the show, you can find the show notes, links to the stories I'm talking about here today over at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL71. Now, one more thing I wanted to add in about the White House. It's kind of a ponderance, and I meant to ask uh, Ford Fisher about this when he was on the show with me. Because, of course, Ford is a journalist. He is, uh, started out as a citizen journalist and has parlayed that into a, a true journalism career, but the white hats, one of the reasons they have so much influence is because not just because of the money the United States gives them, which of course helps, helps when you're trying to buy those gas weapons, but also because of all the content that they share on social media. And this, it brings into question the role of citizen journalism and also what to trust and what not to trust, because we know already that an act that existed previously is no longer there to protect us from propaganda paid for and targeted at the American populace. And well, I should say, really, it, it was to prohibit any propaganda that was targeted at foreign audiences being retargeted at the America as well. It's the Smith-Munt Act is what it's called. And essentially, it's the Smith-Munt Act, which is now gone, prohibited anything like VOA, Voice of America. It's uh, America's news organization, which, uh, of course, I've worked with before in my PR career, but it's their news organization which creates content that is then broadcast in Russia. It's broadcast in uh, throughout, you know, any, any foreign land where possible that we'd want to have influence in. You know, it's probably broadcast in Pakistan and Syria and Libya and everywhere else that it, under these different guises. But the content is rolled out. They're kind of like an associated press style um, news reporting. So it's a news wire. However, when the Smith Munt Act was repealed or expired, really, I think it expired more than anything, that removed the protections that we had from the government using its propaganda against its own citizenry, really. And when we look at what's going on with these White Hats, we're looking at the funding of a foreign entity. And in theory, the funding of this entity is to get Syrians to turn on their own master in uh, Assad and overthrow the government or to sympathize with the United States, the United States mission, which is in theory humanitarian there. We say, okay, well, yeah, that's, it's targeted at foreigners. But with the advent of social media and with the proliferation of content that comes with social media, I don't see how we can possibly avoid things like this. And this is why, in truth, I think there should be a new act to prohibit the United States from funding these sort of things. While I'd prefer that they use information campaigns to change people's minds <laughs> or just outright trade and capitalism is really the way that I would prefer the United States change people's minds rather than taking any sort of effectively uh, aggressive action. 
something to say, you to, something just to prohibit this kind of funding, I think needs to be in place. And again, it's complicated because the White Hats are, in theory, a humanitarian organization. However, we've seen how they operate. We've seen how this ends up, and we've seen how it keeps drawing America into wars. So it's our own propaganda being used to influence other foreign entities, but really is being used to influence American opinion and applauding Donald Trump and all all the major media networks for every single Tomahawk missile attack that he sanctions or further actions taking place in Syria, which could include boots on the ground. I mean, right now, we know that there are Green Berets that are already there on the ground. Anyway, something to think about, especially as libertarians, as people that look to different news sources for our information and look so often to citizen journalists or people like Ford Fisher, but you got to vet them, man. You just you never know. Ford, you better not be working for the government, my friend. Although I would highly doubt he is. All right, next thing to talk about, I brought up this budgetary, uh, the, the best the best month ever for the U.S. government just came true, guys. So a big round of applause. Yes, April was the best month in history for the U.S. budget, according to the Congressional Budget Office. They took in a record tax haul, some $515 billion based upon the surging economy, based upon the surging uh, earnings that came in. And, you know, it's kind of funny because in a way, oh, I should say they spent $297 billion, by the way, but they had a surplus of $218 billion. So in, in a way, this is good, right? In a way, for us libertarians, we say, well... It's proving our economic point of view. It's proving that cutting taxes is fostering more economic prosperity. It's fostering more spending from from, uh, industrial agencies and corporations, which is really where the government's going to make some money off of this because you're cutting taxes on individual Americans. But individual Americans then are getting more jobs, getting more jobs, getting more payroll taxes for the government, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on. Of course, it also helps that people are getting paid more when you have an economy that is surging as it is now. So the government's making money off that, too. Now, (laughs) the downside, of course, is that we're seeing this massive economic boom in the government that is still not addressed spending. We're looking at a nation that is in an unbelievable amount of debt. And, you know, it's funny, we were just talking with uh, with Jason Stapleton, of course, this past weekend. and, And I've not had this conversation with Jason yet. and I really want to. Maybe at our... Maybe at our next meetup, or maybe I'll just, uh, I'll just get us set up a show and have him talk about it. But, you know, Jason, he was talking about passing this debt on to our kids. And, of course, my counterpoint is, well, I don't have any kids. So I don't really give a damn about passing debt on to them. I'd rather have tax cuts in the immediate future. He's saying that he would rather have us address the spending issue. But now comes a time where you say, okay, you have a $218 billion surplus for the month. How about you plow that right back in and try to address some of this debt issue? Now, the only thing that's going on right now, despite $218 billion in surplus, is that Donald Trump wants to trim $15 billion, and he calls it, uh, I mean, basically, it's the the first and only bill that is simply to cut budget, but it just, it it makes you laugh, because it's $15 billion, a, a tiny, like I said, a drop in the water. It's not even 10% of this haul that they've gotten, this historic haul, this historic surplus amount of money that they've gotten from the economic prosperity of Americans, unearned, of course, by the way, completely stolen. But now 
Donald Trump, what a saint for trying to put this bill through that still has to pass through Congress and probably won't even pass through Congress, by the way. Because the Democrats hate cutting spending so much, they're going to insist that we have this surplus. Well, well, how dare we? How dare we say try to trim the debt for future generations, or try to trim the debt to uh, to improve the uh, the economic prosperity and futures of all Americans, and maybe delay the downfall of every great empire, which is, of course, spending yourself into debt and overextending yourself militaristically. But how dare we try to, to trim that in when, of course, from a Democratic point of view, you can plow that money into education or you can plow that into poverty. We can plow it into any number of other things, which there is statistical and proven evidence that more money does absolutely nothing to achieve the economic or uh, desired result in reducing the poverty level or increasing the level of education within this country. And it's funny because we're at a time period right now where Seattle is looking to put a tax on every single person that works at Amazon, which and, and Amazon is dry, is giving thousands upon thousands of jobs to the Seattle economy. And yes, I know Amazon has quite a few crony benefits that are going on there in regards to our government, but the Seattle Local City Council, which is the most retarded bunch of fucks that have ever sat in any city government in the history of the world, confident of that. They're trying to provide something like a 25% to 50% tax per worker on every like hour they work on uh and it's in an effort to help fund issues for the homeless, to provide more affordable housing, to provide more care for them. But this this only applies to companies like Amazon, companies making over $20 million a year. Now, granted, Amazon's making way more than that a year. But you don't have to be a massive company to pull in $20 million a year. And what we're seeing is immediately all these companies go, well, if I have to expand, I'm expanding outside of Seattle. So you've got all this economic prosperity that's earned from companies and earned from capitals and earned from trade and, find, uh, and, and institutions creating demand for a product which everybody wants to use and in turn creating economic prosperity for the city. And Seattle's pulling in buku dollars, by the way, from Amazon, from all the construction and all the taxation they're doing of that company within the city, the city limits. And what do they turn around and do? Decide that they need to tax the crap out of them to spend more money to address the issue of homelessness, which of course is created, as I stated on the show before, not by simply raising of costs for uh, for apartment complexes, because in a free market society, you simply build more apartments that are low, well, uh, you know, affordable to the common man, which is not that out of bounds. You build them a little bit farther out, you build them a little bit smaller, but if you get the regulation and the red tape out of the way, if you get the costs. Uh, and and fees and inspector fees and all this other bullshit and, and the elimination of required low-income housing, then you actually have incentive for people to build more housing in general, which then frees up the local housing economy. I hope that made sense. <laughs> Let me run through it one more time because it's the exact same thing that's happening in LA right now, which is also seeing a huge rise in homeless population. You've got massive regulation, You've got massive amount of costs that are tacked onto every single building project. You've also got local governments, which refuse to allow people to build over a certain height or you refuse to allow certain business uh, complexes in. So what ends up happening is that you have an economy where you're having high high wage workers come in to work for these technology companies. Same thing that's happening in L.A., they can pay far more money. So the, the apartment complexes that are not rent controlled raise their rates. Now you'd say, well, shouldn't we make everywhere rent controlled? No. 
And here's why. Because all that happens with rent-controlled apartments is that people stay in them forever and ever and ever, and they don't leave. And there's no incentive for people to actually improve upon those apartments, because if you're not going to have a tenant that's leaving, you have no incentive to improve that apartment. You're going to keep it the exact same, because there's no point in you expending money to increase the value of the said property if you're not going to be making more, more money equivalently. So you take that, you look at LA. So people then say, okay, well, I'll build a new apartment complex then because there's a huge demand for housing. Same thing in Seattle. Well, no, you got all this red tape and regulations so that adds about a million, $2 million on the basic cost before you even do anything. You have to wait a year and a half to even build because you have to get all of your permits in place. You have to then incorporate low-income housing within the unit. So you're already taking what should be a pure profit play, providing units that are much needed to the economy locally. And now you're saying, well, upon all the money you're spending to build this, 25% of your units now are low income. So you're actually going to be losing money on those. So thus, what do you do? Well, you have to make all of the other units more expensive, don't you? And then they argue, much as Seattle did, that you need to tax people more to pay for the services to go to the homeless, or you need to raise the minimum wage so that the minimum wage comes up to a level where people can afford these new apartments, which, of course, the government has already made so expensive that they can't be afforded anyway. And if you raise the minimum wage, that raises everything else's costs anyway, and the other, the other housing and everything else, bread, milk, and goat butter, will all go up accordingly as well. So... It's a cycle these people don't seem to understand is self-perpetuating. And the more you tax to address the issue, the less it does. Look at American welfare spending. Gone up exponentially. Where's the poverty level? The exact same. The exact same as it's always been. It hasn't moved an inch. In Seattle, they've spent, and this, and thank God locally people in Seattle are waking up to this. But in Seattle, locally they're spending, they, in the last couple of years, they increased their spending on the homeless by 50%. All right, pretty good. Shit, with that much of an increase in spending, you'd think you'd see a little bit of a drop in, uh, in homelessness. Nope, up 37%. You cannot simply spend your way out of these things. If you don't have, don't have people that understand, understand, they call out to John Odermatt. If you don't have people that understand the actual economics, why these things happen and why they happen cyclically, and you turn into this death spiral, you can't get out of it because of overregulation and regulations that cost more money to solve the regulations, then you're never going to solve the problem. So, <laughs> getting back to my point after that epic tangent. Getting back to my point, we've got this massive budget surplus. So there's zero chance that that surplus is going to get plowed into reducing the debt or they're going to attempt to cut spending and spending and say, well, you know, we don't need to tax or, or even say we don't need to tax people this much. If we have this much surplus, we should lower taxes accordingly, should we not? We just need to keep an even keel then. We're making too much money. That'll never happen. Because people in government exist solely to expand the size and scope of government. They will put that money into something else. I pray it's not <laughs> these things I just talked about because it's just throwing money in the toilet. But what do I know? I'm just a simple libertarian podcaster. Okay. Final thing I want to get into uh, this episode, guys, is just to talk a little bit about this whole cultural appropriation flap that's going on. I mentioned it when I was talking with Bridget Fetessy last time. If you haven't heard that podcast, that was a fun time. 
Uh, I'll definitely have Bridget on again, talking about uh, the way she's found libertarianism. And uh, I just had a great time talking with her. But also brought up just briefly this cultural appropriation issue, which cropped up where a uh, Latin, Latin girl, Latina girl, she had worn a traditional Chinese dress to the prom. She looked absolutely gorgeous in it. It was a beautiful dress. She's a beautiful girl. And of course, out of the woodwork, you got all these people, all these Asian Americans, and not only Asian Americans, white Americans as well, uh, coming out and attacking this girl, saying that she's culturally appropriating that, and how dare she, and how the nerve of you to take that traditional dress and put it on your filthy body. Like this one idiot on Twitter who is Asian American is like, my heritage is not your fashion. Well, guess what? Yes, it is. Your heritage is her fashion. Just like all of our heritages are anyone's fashion. That's what fashion does. It takes from different cultures. It takes from different inspirations and it then puts them into something new. Or alternatively, you can resuscitate an old fashion and make it new again. For example, right now, I see a lot of women wearing high-waisted jeans again. I hate it. I think they look like dump. I think they make women look ridiculous. But they're back. Welcome back, Mom Jeans. Great to have you back again. I'm sure we'll see the Blossom Hats make a big return as well. If you never saw the show Blossom, good for you. You're probably young and beautiful and can drink for two straight weekends in a row and stay up to four in the morning and not feel like death for uh, 18 days, like I currently do. But to say that somebody's heritage cannot be utilized by another race just based on the fact that they are that race is ridiculous. And I understand that people say, okay, well, you know, you can't have these, these perpetuating of negative stereotypes and that's cultural appropriation. Like, I, I don't understand how that is cultural appropriation, by the way. You're, you're, you're appropriating what? The, the stereotype? You're going into, you know, we were talking about this Apoof situation with the Simpsons. So what, you're going to go into a local 7-Eleven or Dunkin' Donuts or whatever you want to pick that might have a stereotype? And you're going to what? A culturally appropriate it? So you're going to start acting like that stereotype in your everyday life? Why? For what reason? If it's a negative, why would you just start acting like that in general? Clearly, it's not a negative in that case. Clearly, you see it as a positive, in which case you're trying to emulate somebody that you respect or you admire. Or you find something about that culture attractive, in which case you're trying to emulate it and make it a part of your own culture. Merge it, which is, by the way, how people exist, how trade fosters, how cultures get along, and how language is exchanged. I mean, if we follow this idiotic train of thought to its core, no one should be speaking anyone else's language. Because you're culturally appropriating that language in order to understand it, and we cannot have things like Spanglish. Or I guess Changlish, uh, which is the you know, or Japanglish or whatever you also want to call it, because I was just in Japan, and I'll tell you what, a lot of those words are just English with a little bit of an accent. Same thing with Chinese. Do you know what a hamburger is called in China? It's called a hanbao. Yes, that's right. Wuyao chu hanbao. I want to eat a hamburger. Uh, so, guys. If any time you see someone talk about cultural appropriation, please immediately, and especially, especially by the way, if it's Lena Dunham, if it's Lena Dunham, please take your time out of your day to slap her down 
and from an ideological perspective, because Lena Dunham just said that sushi is cultural appropriation as well. Sushi. And that white people or people that are not of pure Japanese heritage cannot take sushi and make it or try to experiment with it or do anything with it, really, because that is is appropriating someone's culture. Never mind the fact that there are quite a few people that are Japanese-American, that are Japanese-African-American, that are uh, Japanese-whatever-the-hell-Japanese-Latino. There's a local place right here that's well, this isn't sushi, but called Koji, one of the most successful chefs out here. It's a combination of Korean and Mexican food. That is what brings cultures together. And when you start to look at what people can do with food, then you limit even further how people can enjoy each other's company. Going to a nice meal and enjoying that meal can inspire someone to then create something new, which then can go and be brought back to the other culture. For instance, one of the most popular restaurants ever in Japan, it was the best ramen restaurant in Japan. I believe it was by a guy from Brooklyn, but it was a white dude who was down and out on his luck. This is a true story, by the way. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to Google it right now. One second. There you go. Real time. I'm real time looking it up. It's a guy named Ivan Orkin. He was a dishwasher in Long Island. He learned how to make ramen. He taught himself. He fell in love with the Japanese woman. He moved to Japan. She encouraged him to open up his own little ramen place. So he does. And the top ramen blogger in Japan ends up walking in. I guess this guy named uh, Osaki-san. The preeminent ramen critic in 2013, this is a quote, when I ate your ramen, I realized it was not a halfway bowl. It was perfect. I saw that ramen's history had changed here. Right there. Ramen's history had been changed by this man, a white dude from Long Island who was a dishwasher. So fuck you, Lena Dunham. You're an idiot. And all the people out there that are like you that say that cultural appropriation exists and that you can't have these things, don't don't seem to realize that it's just you. It's not the culture it's coming from. Nobody in Japan gave a damn. In fact, there's nobody in China, excuse me, gave a damn. In fact, I've read a whole article about this. Most of the people, if well, actually all of the people in China, either didn't understand what, what the issue was about and purely said, well, I don't care. Or they said, I think this is wonderful. This is an example of an American going out of their way to appreciate and celebrate my culture, which is exactly what it is. And we just had Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> Look, let me tell you something. For every negative uh, frat boy stereotype of I'm going to wear a sombrero and uh, paint a mustache on my head that you might say, oh, well, that's that's just wrong. Oh, my God. Racism, cultural appropriation of this of this holiday of the of Cinco de Mayo. Well, let me tell you, why don't you go ask any owner of a Mexican restaurant anywhere in the United States how they feel about Cinco de Mayo? Why don't you ask anybody in L.A. how they feel about Cinco de Mayo? And how they feel about Americans celebrating it. And they'll tell you they absolutely fucking love it. Because it brings them an incredible amount of income. It brings cultural relevance to, to whatever they're, they want to celebrate and share with people in their local community. It gives people something to talk about. Gives them a reason to go and drink together. And my friends, let me tell you something. There's nothing better than drinking with somebody that you've never spoken with before from another culture. I do it all the time. They joke about it on the podcast. Brian getting drunk and talking to dudes at bars. I do it all the time. I find it interesting, especially with these people from other cultures. So 
That'll do it for me this episode, guys. I'll be back. We'll talk about a little bit more uh, in regards to Seattle. I think they're having their vote on the 14th or 15th in so far as this Amazon tax I was talking about. I was debating getting into the right to work issue because that's what I believe I was uh, talking to uh, to Matt about <laughs> at this event, at this meetup event where my brain co- completely had the meltdown in regards to uh, to the unions and providing an alternative where you can't force somebody to join a union. Uh, I may try to get into that a little bit more too because I think there's I think there's an issue with that coming to a head in one of the uh, like there's a bill out there that Rand put forth. But anyway, my brain done stopped working for today. So that's all you get. But before I go, I do want to remind you that you can listen to Mark Claire on Mondays with his in-depth interviews with leaders of the libertarian movement. Always make sure to catch John Odermatt on Fridays with Felony Friday, looking at the issues within the criminal justice system. I want to remind you, you can support our podcast by going to lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. Right now, we are still doing that through Podbean. We are uh, actively looking at transitioning to Patreon as well. But don't worry, we will keep you posted, keep you up to date. Please do not let that stop you from joining the Pride and enjoying all the content we have, like Degenerate Gamblers, my show I do with Rico Anodi, talking about gambling, talking about crazy stories, <laughs> half and half. And then, of course, we also do our conspiracy corner shows. And uh, the last one they did was about the uh, Arkansas side, as they call it. But all of those Clinton killings, that and much, much more. So please do support the show and uh, get us to Porkfest, get us to the Libertarian Convention, get us some video equipment so you can see just how unattractive and drunk we are in person, uh, which you can see at Porkfest, too. All right, guys, that'll do it. From me, Brian McWilliams, from Lions of Liberty, from Electric Liberty Land. I want to remind you to always stay plugged in to liberty.